Well, good morning. Thank you for coming on Memorial Day weekend. When Curtis asked me to talk, I said, perfect. We're going to be a little light in attendance. It's not going to be as big of a deal, but there's still a lot of you. So thank you for coming. My name is Evan McCord. Um, I'm an elder here at Bayou City Fellowship, and it is an absolute honor and joy to serve you, um, to try to seek God's will for our body, to pray for you, to care for you, to figure out the needs of the body of believers that God's given us. It's a, it's a joy. I could go on and on about that, but we'll stop there. As you know, uh, I'm not Curtis, and some of you are doing your, um, your math in your head, and you're like, well, let's see, Trilobi was last week, which means that Curtis should be this week, and you're not Curtis, and I'm sorry. I am not, but I tell you what, I did wear the coolest shoes that I have <laughs> to try to make up for it. My wife bought me these, but she actually got some input, input from somebody in their 20s who lives in the Heights, which means they are verifiably cool. Curtis hasn't seen them yet, but I'll let you know what he thinks of them. Second, I'm really doing my absolute best to try to catch up to Curtis in the hair department. I'm not quite there yet, but I'm doing my best. And you know the one thing my wife told me this morning? She said, I don't care what you say as long as you don't make a bald joke. <laughs> Sorry. She, she's just over there like, hmm. one demerit. <laughs> All right, off to a good start so far. Uh, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 19, please. I'm going to start in verse 7. Just follow along as I read. I'm going to go through verse 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. And keeping them, there is great reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray right now that the hearts and minds of the people listening today would be full of grace. That your Holy Spirit would come and just intercede on my behalf so that nothing I say is out of line with your word and your scripture. I pray that what is heard and understood and taken home in the hearts of the people today is exactly right and true and clean and pure. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart today are acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, where are we going today? I was given a really easy topic. We're, in, we're still doing our, uh, our series on the Holy Bible. And I get to tell you in a very short amount of time how to interpret the Bible. Easy. It'll take about five minutes. We're going to get out of here quickly because it's just a one, two, three step plan and you're done, right? How to interpret the Bible. No, what I, what I really want to hit home today though, and I, I'm thinking of David here, is when we interpret the Bible correctly, a proper interpretation of the Bible, 
it should lead us to treasure the word of God like David did here in Psalm 19 because it reveals to us the infinite value of the God of the word. That's what I want to make clear here today. A proper interpretation will ultimately end in us just overflowing with love and joy for the word itself because we see, we catch a glimpse of who the God of the word actually is, actually is. And that's key. Um, How are we gonna do this? First, we gotta do the work ourselves. You can't get around it. You have to do the work yourself. It's really easy these days to live in a culture of what I call curated Christianity. You know, you can... You can be a Christian, you can acknowledge Christ with your lips, but it's super, super simple to be able to just, uh, you know, take a tweet, say, ooh, I like that, retweet, like, or even better, why don't you write it in really cute font and put it on Instagram so that everybody else can comment on how much they love it too. You know, it's really easy to do that, and I don't mean to disparage that, like, that, that's awesome, but when you rely just on prepackaged sort of little nuggets of wisdom from the word of God, it doesn't seek in. Do you really truly understand and have a value for the scriptures because you read that? Do you really truly see the God of the word because you interact with his word in that way? You gotta do the, word, you gotta do the work yourself. And frankly, um, you, know, you can come to Christ with very, very little understanding. I don't mean to minimize salvation at all. But you can come to Christ with very little understanding of who God is and how he works. But you will never grow to maturity in ignorance. And that's important. If you call upon the name of Christ, that's just the beginning. You are called to grow into maturity. Christ told us that we need to go and teach others how to obey him. And that's what we're trying to do here today. Do the work yourself. Second, you can't can't approach the word trying to justify your own subjective experience. Instead, you've got to go and, and discover within the word the objective reality of who God actually is. It's really easy for us to say, this is how I think about God or how the world should be or to be influenced by culture or other people and say, this is what I think must be true or what I think, what I feel. Therefore, let me just search and I find, oh, I found something that supports it. Amen. That's not how we need to approach the word of God when we're rightly interpreting the word of, uh, rightly interpreting scripture. We need to be looking instead at the objective reality of who God is. I think if you've been around the church at all for any period of time, you've probably sat in like a Bible study or a community group or something sometime where the leader reads a piece of scripture and then says, so what does this mean to you? You all kind of know what happens from there, right? There's always the one person who really wants to talk about the president. And so somehow, you know, this, ta- this, is, this is about the president. There's another person who, you know, as sad as it may be, is going through a period of poor health problems. And so this scripture all of a sudden means that God is a healer. And you know, everybody just kind of throws out what it, what it means to you. But the thing you have to be careful with when you do that is you have to understand that if the scripture can mean anything we want it to mean, it really means absolutely nothing at all. It must have inherent meaning. So the purpose of what we're doing when we read scripture is trying to look and, and trying to figure out what the author meant. And I mean that by little a author and capital A author, the God that inspired the man that wrote the word. That's what we gotta get. 
Then once we get that, we can take that and apply it to whatever is going on in our life, but not the other way around. Um, it's, if, we, if we go with the subjective experience, it's, it's basically like approaching scripture like, like, a, like looking up at the sky and clouds and saying, well, what does that look like to you? What does it look like to you guys? What? I think it looks like a frog sticking his tongue out at me. What, you know, why, is, why is your interpretation any better than mine, right? That's what I think. It's just a cloud, right? That's not how we should approach scripture. We really need to make sure that we understand we're trying to figure out the objective reality of who God is. Like a, a lighthearted example of when this happens is Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm pretty sure that does not mean that God wants you to break a tackle and score a touchdown. I'm pretty sure. Or even win that football game or whatever. I'm pretty sure when Paul was talking about it, he was saying, he was, he was giving appreciation to all of the, the people that he was writing to and saying, I've endured so many good things and so many bad things, and yet nevertheless, I will endure. I can endure anything in the name of Jesus because he gives me strength. That's the meaning, and that's how it should be applied. But it's really easy for us to be like, well, that sounds like a Superman verse. Anytime we, can, we need some power and strength, let's quote that. Be careful with that sort of stuff. That's what we're trying to avoid. So, how do we avoid the temptation to apply our meaning to the scriptures? How do we uh, read, interpret, and apply the word of God correctly? I think there's some practical things that we can go through. And look, people make an entire career on this next little bit of how to study the word. They make an entire career on one little sub point of how to do this. Seminary professors teach a whole entire course on this. So I'm doing it super injustice by just going through it in the next 10 minutes, but we're gonna give it a shot. First, you gotta know the word of God. I don't mean memorize all of it, although awesome. If anybody does that, that's incredible. I don't mean memorize it. Um, here's what I mean. So in Kansas City, at the Nelson Museum, they're engaging in systematic child abuse, absolute child abuse. And the way they're doing that is they've come up with this glass maze. And let me tell you, it's <laughs> for an adult. You walk in there and they've cleaned that glass super well, super well. And you think, well, it's, it should be fine. It should almost be easier because you can see through it. But you can't tell where like the path is and where the glass is. And so like the adults are smart enough to quickly go, ooh, okay, here we go. And you kind of work your way around. The kids, on the other hand, just go, boom. I mean, boom, straight into it. The middle child of our friend that we were visiting, Millie, <laughs> really had a tough go of it. I think by the third, <laughs> third time that she just full on just nailed her nose into a pane of glass. Her dad finally picked her up and carried her out. Uh, you know, I won't tell the story about my son possibly doing the same thing. Um, it's tough, even for an adult. But man, wouldn't it be incredible? Let's, let's see the picture of it from on top. Wouldn't it be incredible if you had a bird's eye view of it? Any maze, right? It's not just this glass maze, but any maze, if you kind of know generally where you need to get and you've got an understanding of, of the route, you can get through the maze much, much quicker. That's what I mean. Know the word of God. So first, know the composition of the Bible. Chalobi went through kind of the history of it last week, but you should know how it's made up. There's a whole lot of different ways that the Bible's made up. We've got all kinds of different literature. You gotta, I want you to remember these numbers. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12, 4, 1, 21, 1. Let's do it. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12, 4, 1, 21, 1. 
ingrain that in your head. This is what it means. Five books of the Pentateuch. We'll go back. I'm still on the numbers. Here we go. Five books of the Pentateuch, 12 books of history in the Old Testament, five books of poetry, five major prophets, 12 minor prophets. All of these are totally different books, totally different types of literature written in different ways. You need to understand that. Then you go into the, the New Testament, the four gospels, one book of history, Acts, 21 epistles, and then you got the one book of prophecy in Revelation. All different things, a diverse type of writing all throughout the Bible, and yet they all tell one story. That's the other thing you need to know. There's a big story that is going on throughout all of scripture. If you read the Bible, you'd understand that. You would see it. Um, we teach your kids this timeline. It's highlighted Solomon, but that's just what we could find. We're not talking about Solomon today. And frankly, that's really little. But I promise you, that's a timeline of the biblical events. So you should have a, like an understanding of how God has interacted with humans from the time that he created us until he, and know what he will do in the future. We have it all. And when you understand where you, where you fall in that timeline or where the story or the poetry or whatever it is that you're reading falls in that timeline, it could matter. It means something. It gives you context. Lastly, no basic theology. I know some of you are like, oh no. We've had a lot of that going on recently. Do we need to keep talking about theology? Yeah, we do. Um, just a little bit. Everybody has a theology. You already do. You have an understanding of who you believe God is and how he works and the things that he does. You already got it in your head. Some of it's probably incomplete. Some of it's probably wrong, maybe. So why wouldn't you have at least the basics? God created the world. We are sinful human beings. God is, is a triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons. Christ is both fully man and fully God and why that matters. There's some things that you don't, you don't need to be a scholar to know it, but it really helps when you're actually looking at the word of God. So know a basic theology. All right, moving on. You gotta know the word of God, but you also need to study the word of God. So what does this mean? Um, I could spend, again, hours and hours and hours on this, but we're gonna go quickly. Just read it. Read it. Who, what, when, where, why, what time of day was it? I mean, don't stop. Don't limit your brain to anything. Don't think that anything's familiar. Read it. That's kind of what it boils down to. And then when you want to go real kind of expert level, think about the language. You can get resources to help you. You don't have to be a scholar. Think about the culture. That, all of it helps you to figure out what the author actually meant. If you wrote something today, it's gonna be colored with your culture, with who you are and the things that you think are important. And that's how it was written back then. You've gotta discover what the meaning was in that way. And very important, pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to just open your heart and your mind to the truth of God's word. That is so important. And I'm not then saying that the Holy Spirit just reveals to you whatever you wanna find Pray that the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to the actual meaning of what you're reading. And frankly, what I'm saying here is that you should at least take the study of the word of God at, at least as seriously as you took your high school English class. Some of you are like, like I know some of you in here right now literally didn't read any of the books required for a high school English class. I know some of you didn't. So maybe some of you need to do better than that. 
but why wouldn't you take the most important thing that you've ever been given, a word, the word of God, at least as seriously as you took a high school English class? Could you do that? It's not just a hobby. This is important. Study the word of God. Lastly, apply it. What are some concrete ways to actually allow the truth of the scripture to change your life? This is a struggle for me. I'm gonna always fall on the side of like just gaining knowledge. I love it. Give me more. Like give me context and knowledge and blah, blah, blah. I love it. I can't get enough of it. But then sometimes I just leave it at that. And that's not how you truly accurately interpret the word of God because you're not applying it. Think of concrete ways that you can do that. You've got yourself. You've got your family. You've got money. You've got work. You've got your sexuality. You've got everything. How does what you're reading actually apply? And then, how am I going to change because of it? How am I actually going to change because of what I've read? Okay, so let's put it into practice. I'm not, I'm not checking um, Instagram to see if you guys have put this anywhere. Um, I've got a timer going. Uh, let's put it in practice. One of my favorite, favorite uh, scriptures is kind of weird, I, I guess, but um, it's Gideon. So I'm going to be kind of working with Gideon 6 and 7 if you want to turn there with me. We're not going to put it on the screen because there's kind of a lot of it. But turn with me to Gideon. So if you remember, Gideon was a judge. And the judges came along after God had freed the Israelites from Egypt. He had freed them. They wandered for 40 years. Moses brought them to the brink of the, of the uh, promised land, but he couldn't go in. Joshua took them the rest of the way. Joshua was a great leader, kind of in the pattern of Moses. He helped kind of conquer the land, clear out a lot of the people of Canaan. God's judgment rested upon those people and they were cleared out of the land and he gave it to the Israelites. And they came into the land, but then boom, quickly right thereafter, God's people started rebelling against him. There's disobedience, like within a generation. And some of us are like, how could you forget that? You know, like the Red Sea parted. And that's like, how on earth do you then start worshiping Baals and Asherah poles and all this stuff? Look into your own heart. How quickly do you understand the truth of God and then the very next day, absolutely just turn your back on it? These are real human beings in a real time, in a real culture, trying to do what they can and failing. And God calls them back to obedience. The way he does that is he appoints certain people well, first, because of their disobedience, they allow, uh, God allows some of the people that, that maybe Joshua or others didn't fully kind of eradicate out of the, out of the area to come in and, and then people from the outside. They came in and they started giving trouble to the Israelites all in different ways. And, and God would let them suffer for a while. Then there'd be kind of a, a crying out. God would listen to his people and he would raise up a judge and not like a courts in session kind of judge. These are judges that were more like, you know, pseudo prophets who would just kind of guide and lead God's people, really, sometimes uh, in, in a military way to kind of release them from the torment that they'd be going through. But then it always only lasted for a period of time and the Israelites would fall back into it. So this is where we find ourselves after several of these have happened in the middle of Judges with Gideon. Gideon is like in, the, in a tribe that's a low level tribe in a clan that's a low level clan of that tribe and he's sitting under a tree and the angel of the Lord comes to him and it's like, Gideon, you, I'm calling you out. You're my man. You're gonna help rescue us because the last few years, like seven years or so, the Midianites and the Amalekites came from the outside and they would come in at harvest time and just like sweep in, tear up the land, take everything and then leave, which is almost even worse. Like it's, it's one thing if you just come in and just like 
we're in charge now, but it's worse when it's like you think you're okay and then you just hope the Midianites don't show up and then every year they come and steal your crops, you know? That's gotta be a problem. I always think of like a bug's life, you know? Hopper and the grasshoppers that come in, <laughs> steal them. I don't, I don't really, that has nothing to do with anything. So that's where we are. He calls, God speaks to him uh, under a tree and, and, and uh, Gideon immediately says, oh, okay, thanks. Um, can you show me a sign? And so God's like, okay, here's a sign. He's like, okay, great. So then he actually has the ability by the, through the spirit of the Lord to go and call a great army together. Again, just a no-name guy has the ability to call a great army together. I couldn't do that. If I just started kind of waving a flag around or posting things on the internet and say like, come fight with me, I mean, who would you guys follow? You know, clearly the spirit of the Lord is working with him. And yet, even when he does that, he's coming to the brink of like fighting and defeating the Midianites. And we, we're up to now chapter six, verse 36. Gideon says, okay, 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 thank you. You've been faithful so far. Now I've got an idea. I, want, I have a fleece. I'm gonna leave it overnight on a threshing floor. And here's what I'd like you to do, God. I'd like you to like put dew on just the fleece and no dew on the ground. And God's like, all right comes this next morning, dew's totally wet. Thank you, God. And this is where it's like just the gall of this man. Thank you, God. Just to be sure, could you reverse it tonight? Could you put the dew on the ground and then maybe keep the fleece dry? And I'm sure God's like, okay. And he does it. Okay, great. Thank you, God. Thank you. Now we're up to the third sort of sign that he needed. So then he goes, and this is where we're gonna pick it up in verse seven. They're, they're on a ridge. They're surrounding the Midianites down in the valley. The Bible says that they were like locusts. There was like 120,000 of them or more, almost spread out, ready to kind of take what they wanted. So chapter seven, verse two of Judges. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So we had 32,000 and God says, wait a minute. Even that, again, remember, we're talking about 120,000 Midianites already. So they're already outnumbered and God says, it's too many. I know the hearts of my people, they're gonna boast. Let anybody that's afraid go away. So 22,000 go away. So we're down to 10. Then this next section, God comes up with this kind of weird drinking game. Am I allowed to say drinking game from a pulpit? I just did, sorry. God comes up with a weird drinking way to separate the rest of the people. There's, you'd be surprised how much commentary can be written about like whether or not a man is lapping up water from the water in his hands versus drinking, like tons of it. Nobody really understands exactly what God's doing here. But let me just tell you, he sifts through everybody and everybody that drinks a certain way stays and everybody that drinks another way goes 300 left. That's the important part. So we're down from 32,000 to 300. So let's pick up verse 15. Oh, I'm sorry. So then, sorry for all the setup. So then, Gideon says, great, thank you. You've been with me. Of course, you had me call an army and now you have it down to 300, whatever that means. And God says, all right, now you're ready. It's, tonight is a night, except I know you're Gideon, so you probably want a sign. So he sends him into the camp 
of the Midianites and he overhears a Midianite saying, I had a dream where basically, you know, Israel wins and we lose and we all die. And that is enough for Gideon to say like, okay, thank you, God. So we're now up to four signs. And then he goes back and he says, all right, let's go. So as soon as Gideon heard that, I'm I'm in verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, that's middle of the night, when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. I love that. You know, like 300 guys standing up on a ridge blowing a trumpet and waving some torches and like that causes hundreds of thousands of fighting men to start killing each other. I mean, if that isn't God, I don't really know what is. Um, When we're looking at interpreting the Bible, you know, if you're going through this in a lot of detail, you could start pulling out tons of stuff. We could really read it in depth and we could talk about, you know, Uh, the setting. You could talk about the time of day from morning to night. You could talk about the dream. You could talk about all the things that um, Gideon required. You could go through all of that. You could talk about how Gideon gave jars with the with the torches in them and how when when you think of earthen jars, jars of clay in the in the Bible, you're talking you're you it usually signifies like human weakness, especially as it's compared to God's great power. And that's here. You could talk about all that and we could do sermons and little sort of offshoots of all of that stuff. But I think the thing that really sticks out to me about this is that ultimately you have, you, got, you have God giving victory, but it's only to the extent that it was clear it wasn't Gideon or the Israelites. He reduced everybody down to a, to a point where they were absolutely disqualified from taking any of the credit. It's impossible to do what God did other than God, obviously. Um, And what comes out to me, what sticks with me, is that God is not interested in simply giving us a victory. He's interested with teaching us trust and giving us glimpses in the process into his unending, unfathomable power and glory. He took a man who was just full of fear. God, I need signs an angel of the Lord visits him and tells him what's gonna happen and he still asks for like four more things after that. I need signs, I am fearful. God takes that man, then he strips away everything he can call of his own, all of his might, all of his pride, whatever, and then gives him the victory and says, the victory is mine. Trust in me. 
May your faith be built because of what I have done. Sometimes our own ability has to be just absolutely disqualified so that our pride doesn't blind us to God's sovereign hand. And I also think if this is how God deals with somebody with so much fear, like can you imagine what would happen if you had tons of faith? Can you imagine? And then I go back to this. I am Gideon, always. I've been many times in my life. I think it'll be something I always struggle with. Pride that just seeps up inside of me and says, look at what you've done. And even Gideon, after he's reduced down to all of this, even after that, what does he have the people yell? For the Lord and for Gideon. It's like, God, God, I was here too. Like, you know, I was at least telling the people what to do, right? And he goes, as the story goes on, you see that he, he didn't entirely just move into a, a humble faith. He did some stuff that kind of caused him problems, um, that kind of glorified himself over God. And man, don't I do that too? This really hits home for me when you're talking about taking the interpretation of the word of God and then applying it because three and a half years ago, I was um, called into my partner's office. I, I'm an attorney and I worked at a big firm, did litigation. So I was called into my partner's office and he was kind of a guy that, he's a great guy, but we didn't talk. So I didn't think that this was gonna be like a you know, chat. So I was called in and he said, look, you've done a great job. You're doing a great job. We love you. Uh, everybody loves working with you. Your clients like you and respect you. We just, ha- we have a lot of people in your class. We're thinking a couple years ahead and we've, we really, normally we just wouldn't say anything because you can, we can make a lot of money off of you in the next two years. But we wanted to be kind to you and we wanted to tell you that we just really think in a couple years, two, three, four years, we're not gonna be, you know, you're not gonna be somebody that we're gonna really push for partner. And half of me was like, forget you. Like, what on earth? I'm freaking awesome at being an attorney. You don't know what you're talking about. You have no idea. My pride was hurt. That's ridiculous. Why would you say that? Why wouldn't I wanna be a partner? And then the other half of me was like, thank you, God, thank you. I didn't, I've never wanted to do that. I had no desire to do that. And if some of you are partners in law firms, that's nothing against you. Like, amen, go for it. But I had no desire to do that. The same man that told me that used to throw up uh, before like arguments. And I was like, ooh. <laughs> that's like your job? No, thank you. So I didn't wanna do it. And so there was this freedom. And they were like, look, I know, I mean, you can stay obviously, but I, we wanted to tell you now because that maybe might affect your thought of like what you wanna do. I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> yes. So I started looking for jobs and um, I, God blessed me quickly. Um, I felt a great peace about stuff, but then, you know, it's jobs. Everybody knows this. If you've, if you've kind of been looking for work and trying to figure out what God wants you to do next, you've, you've had that sort of like, what, what does it look like? I've never had anything else. And so I, um, you hear the landing music, we're getting close. So uh, I randomly sent an email to one of my friends and said, hey, here's a, here's a job. It's this company called Heinz. It's a, it's a real estate firm. Um, wouldn't it be fun if we could, um, that's where he worked. Wouldn't it be fun if we could uh, carpool? And the joker doesn't email me back. He just says, I've called the guy that's making the hire 
and uh, you're supposed to send your resume directly to him. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, that was a joke. I don't even know what the job description means. I literally cannot do that job. I don't know what some of that means and I can't do the rest of it. It's not my training, it's not my background. It's the equivalent of saying like, look, I'm a teacher, I teach kindergarten. I'd really love to teach like high school AP English. You know, I guess you could do it. Like you could work your way through it. But no, I didn't do it. I mean, it wasn't my thing. Well, I send my resume and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. You're gonna be embarrassed that you've recommended me. I send my resume in and uh, I, uh, I just kept getting like called back. And guys, I was like totally honest with these people. I was like, um, yeah, no experience. Nope. <laughs> well, have you ever done any real estate litigation? No, nope, actually, no. None of that. A lot of oil and gas stuff. Y'all don't do oil and gas, right? No? Okay. Uh, and I kept just, like, I'd hang up and I'd be like, I mean, that went well for not getting the job. You know, like, they were kind. And then I'd get a call, like, two days later. Hey, they'd really like to keep going with you. And I was like, <laughs> what is going on? So at the same time, I've got, like, this other sort of opportunity going, and I've got that going in the background and there's just a whole lot of other details here that are amazing. I just, I kind of keep going. And I keep sitting down in front of people and say, like, I know I can do the job. I want to learn it. And you're going to get somebody that has a, uh, like a, a background that you don't even have, that you don't even know that you want, but you should still hire somebody that's not actually qualified for the job. And I say that and I'm like, you know, I don't believe it. If somebody told that to me now, I'd be like, no, thank you. I keep saying that over and over. And then like my mom comes in and says like, heaven, I don't know why, but like, I, I, I don't want to tell you this because I, I just hesitate to say this, but like, I feel the Holy Spirit telling me that this is a job for you. And I was like, okay, <laughs> thank you. Uh, and then I heard that I was praying one time in the car and I heard the same thing. And I was like, God, what are you, like, I would love that, but that it's impossible. And then I didn't get the job. I got a call, it said, no thanks. And I was like, okay, amen, that was cool. I don't know, I'm not sure why they wasted so much time on me, but amen. So I accept another job. And we were kind of excited to be like moving on to the next phase of my work life. And so we'd gone to, to Galveston and then I got a call outside of Casey's, uh, like five calls from my now boss. Um, and I was like, I guess I should go call him. I don't know why he's following up like this. So I stayed in the car and I called him back. And I walked in and, and Naomi's like, what'd he say? And I was like, well, he offered me the job. She's like, okay, okay. I was like, no, he did. He offered me the job. I guess their first choice, I'm happy to be a second choice, by the way. Their first choice said no. Their first choice said no. And I took the job. And to me, this is, this is Gideon. This is me being stripped of all of the things that I could try to say were my own. Like I got sort of told that my future was not bright. And that kind of sucked. And then I start going after a job that's absolutely impossible. And I was honest about it. God wanted to take away all the things that could, could inch up in my pride. And he wanted to say, I have this for you. This is the plan that I have for you. This is how I will deliver you. That's why I love this. Because I read this and I see that. I see the faithfulness of God in my own life. And it just comes alive to me. And that's what I desire for you. Because when I read it, I value the scripture because I see the infinite value of the God 
of the word who wrote it. I love it. So how do we interpret scripture? And I, I want you all to read, interpret, and apply scripture so that you see the creator for who he truly is so that then you can value the Bible as the precious sort of resource and treasure that it is. You know, one thing I was thinking, I believe all this, so don't, don't get me wrong on this, but if God is real, if God really created the entire universe, if he really then sent his son down to rescue us, to save us out of our own sin, to call us into communion with him, wouldn't it make this the most wonderful thing ever? That we get to see like a glimpse into the heart and mind of the first and best of all beings? Wouldn't make it the best, best thing ever? That's how I want you to approach scripture. I try, I fail all the time because I still go back to work sometimes and I'm like, man, I'm really good at this job. That's probably why they hired me. And I gotta read Gideon again. That's not why they hired me. God has me here. Keep your head down. Thank God for your blessings and move forward. I see God more clearly because I see his word. That's what I'm asking for you guys. Nothing I say is as good as what David could say. So let's finish where we started. Psalm 19, seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. Take this with you. In keeping them, there is great reward. Amen. Heavenly Father, pray that you would solidify in the hearts and minds uh, of the people here today the word I think that you'd have us hear. I pray that you would just have everyone here forget my name and remember the name of Christ. I pray that they would have a love for the scripture that would just be overflowing and so that it's infectious. I pray that you would give them not only a deep value for the word of God, but for the God of the word, for you. Thank you for who you are and for the gift of your word. We ask this in your great son's name and through the power of the Holy Spirit.